0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hello, cardio nerds. Dan Ambiner here. We are in the midst of a four-part infectious disease miniseries all about COVID-19. In our last episode, we were joined by two wonderful infectious disease experts, Dr. Natasha Chita and Dr. Saman Tolahi from the Johns Hopkins Hospital. We talked about all things needed to know about emerging treatments for COVID-19. We now continue with part two of this important discussion and delve into the important subject of protecting healthcare workers during the pandemic. Be sure to stay tuned for the remaining two parts of this mini-series in which we will discuss the clinical presentation and diagnosis of COVID-19 and finally, high-yield aspects behind the virology of the novel coronavirus. We are also very excited to let you know that we have launched a COVID-19 YouTube lecture series, Doctors and Gage, Andrew Higgins, and Ron Lee from the Cleveland Clinic present a phenomenal talk that reacquaints cardiology with mechanical ventilation. doctor Pranoti Harmuth summarizes cardiovascular implications of COVID-19 learned from our colleagues from China. Dr. Deepak Atri and Victor Nafal from Harvard, Brigham, and Women's Hospital dive into all things you ever wanted to know about SARS-CoV-2 virology and the rationale of emerging treatments. And Dr. Richa Gupta from Vanderbilt presents a phenomenal two-part series of myocardial dysfunction and myocarditis in COVID-19 patients. All of this can be found on our COVID page, www.cardionerds.com forward slash episodes forward slash COVID-19. Folks, we've already put the core in coronavirus. Now it's time that we put the ID in COVID. But before we do, please note that this episode was recorded on March 27th, 2020. As information rapidly evolves, please stay up to date with the most current guidelines. Please remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinion and policies of our employers. The goal is simply to learn more about cardiology, I mean infectious disease, in the COVID era directly from our expert, Micronerds,
2: our colleagues here and across the world are going to work every day to take care of patients hand in hand with an army of hospital workers. Of course, it's an honor and a privilege to serve always and especially at a time like this, but the impact on healthcare workers has been quite severe. Uh, we've heard reports of up to 20% of the healthcare workforce in Italy is infected. Uh, over 3,300 workers in China were infected as of early March. Dr. Hashemian in Iran conveyed to us that several of his colleagues had also died early on when uh, before coronavirus was identified.
3: Hearing all these reports is so sobering, and certainly the dangers to healthcare workers are real and prevalent, and unfortunately, we are already seeing that here in America. Advice on how to protect ourselves and our families has been inconsistent and a bit confusing. In our case, Dr. Spikes took care of Ms. COVIDs in the clinic, and Dr. Sam Brusca and David Ferfaro are taking care of her in the ICU. They just messaged us with some questions.
1: Their immediate question is about the use of PPE, or personal protective equipment. They noticed a huge variation in recommendations and practices. Dr. Bintone of Italy and Professor Binkao of China told us that they are using N95s around COVID areas and surgical masks everywhere else in the hospital. The CDC is recommending only surgical masks, only in COVID areas with N95s restricted to aerosolizing procedures. Some municipalities in China go so far to enforce a compulsory face mask use in public areas for everyone. The issue is compounded by restricted testing and asymptomatic transmission. What is your guidance for us? This seems all a little bit confusing.
0: Yeah, that's great. What I'll share is um largely based on guidelines we've received from, you know, Hopkins administration and also from the C D C. So I think a lot of this will be based on your own institution guidelines. But unfortunately, you know, as far as COVID two spreads, our lack of availability of PPE requires us to safely conserve and reuse uh, PPE. You know, to be honest, probably a lot of us should be wearing surgical masks and face shields at all times when we see patients and then wearing, you know, an N95 or like a PAPR for patients that are under investigation or confirmed cases. And this, like I said, this may differ with each institution. So I encourage each learner to uh, follow those guidelines. So these issues with uh, PPE really stems from, um, unfortunately, the United States not being able to make their own PPE really quickly, and then the supply chain drying up. And so I learned this from uh, Peter Shen recently, as far as being able to use the principles from flu and applying that to the coronavirus. And so we really want to just protect our mucosa. And so since this is droplet virus, as uh, Natasha had mentioned, being able to travel anywhere from three to six feet, we want to wear a mask and a face shield to really protect our mouth, our nose, and also our eyes, all these mucosa surfaces. And so since they can also live on surfaces like Natasha had mentioned, we want to wear a gown to protect our clothing because it can obviously land on there and we can carry that um, home with us. But if in the ICU, the patient, we should try to get the patient into a negative pressure room due to the risk of procedures and aerialization of the virus during those procedures. There are ways to try to conserve this. We can try to limit people going in and out of rooms. We can try to reuse N95 masks and surgical masks if we need to also reusing and cleaning face masks. And so there's a number of procedures that we can do. But again, each institution has their guidance as far as what you should be reusing, what you should be conserving and the methods to clean each of these materials. You know, for example, the University of Nebraska has developed a UV radiation protocol to decontaminate all their N95 masks.
4: So yeah, I think that's a great summary, Salman. And, and I'll just clarify that CDC's guidance... If you read the fine details for healthcare professionals, it actually, it does recommend N95s, but it says if the supply chain uh, is disruptive, then to go to surgical masks. But it actually does say when the supply chain is restored, you should return to the use of um, N95 or Pappers. So. The preference is still N95 or PAPRs, but I think this just takes into account the reality of the situation that we're in, which is that, you know, if your institution just doesn't have enough, then you have to go to the next best thing, which would be surgical masks. And I think all of us don't like that, and all of us would love to have copious amounts of N95s around, but unfortunately, just right now, that's not the case, and I think practicality is driving some of these CDC recommendations. But I think we have to be careful, as as Samana said, about uh, making sure we don and doff our PPE in a way that prevents exposure to ourselves and that we're careful about not potentially allowing for transmission uh, through contaminated masks. There isn't clear data on whether or not that happens. There are some papers that hypothesize it could have happened. And so it certainly seems to be a possibility. But again, I think this is just unfortunately the situation that we're in right now.
3: Natasha and someone, thank you so much for walking us through that. Uh, this, of course, uh, has been uh, an issue of major concern for a lot of us and I think I want to highlight what you said is to certainly go based on our local institutional guidelines, which are based on CDC guidelines, but it's also, I think, helpful to realize that there is a disconnect between what's ideal and what we're being asked to do, and, and just at least realizing that hopefully will help us not become totally secure in how we're carrying out our day and, and not complacent. So I think so it's a call essentially to help improve the supply chain and production and access to PPE.
4: I think one important thing that's going to help us get through this is trust in each other as healthcare professionals and trust in our health system that we work in. And so I think I would just cite that, you know, if even if what your institution is recommending to you seems, uh, you know, inappropriate, I think we just have to recognize that people are doing the best that they can with what they have. And that I think the institutions are just trying to keep people as safe as possible with the resources that they have. But I know it can be hard not to get frustrated if you don't agree with the guidance, but you know, people are, are thinking hard about this and are doing what they can do to keep their employees safe. And, and it's not a great situation for us to be in. But I think um, just giving each other some grace and trying to understand why decisions are being made is really important.
3: I'll just take this moment to um, plug uh, Get Us PPE to a group of providers that came together to help connect people who have extra PPE with people who need PPE. Uh, thank you.
2: So back to, uh, some of the concerns we've heard from fellow healthcare providers. Their second major concern is how they should protect their families. Many have spouses, elderly relatives, and or children at home. A healthcare worker risking their health and life because of their calling is one thing, but to impart risk on a loved one at home is quite another thing. Because of this fear, providers are practicing all sorts of different rituals. Uh, I know Amit's wife showers after work before playing with their son Dhruv. Two of her co-workers have coronavirus. Dr. Hashemian in Iran remains completely isolated from his family and emotionally described his grief about the potential for not being able to hold his son and daughter for days, possibly months. Dr. Stu Ray, an ID attending at Hopkins, recently tweeted about staying at a hotel while he practices on the COVID service to protect his family. Uh, And we definitely know that option has been made available to fellows. And I'm sure other faculty uh, are going to be looking towards opportunities of either staying in hotels or Airbnbs in order to protect their family during this time.
1: Yeah. And this is such a hot topic issue. You can literally open up your phone at any time. And somebody, I, I just popped up my phone on Twitter, and it's like the first post I see is somebody's asking, so how do we how do we know when to separate from our families? Where are we with this today? And, you know, in this perspective piece published in New England Journal of Medicine titled, quote, Am I Part of the Cure or Am I Part of the Disease?, Dr. Christian Rose elegantly describes his worry about bringing home the virus to his elderly mother-in-law. He decides to stay at his friends instead. Uh, you know, and Dr. Sam Bruska, as we've talked about, who eloquently taught us about uh, mechanical restoration and the circulatory system, is about to leave the ICU after taking care of Ms. COVID's, and he's about to go home to his wife and infant daughter, Madeline. What should he do? He said he's out of hotel points on his credit card, and he's just literally trying to find a plan ahead. What would you advise him?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a really... Really difficult uh, question to answer, and I'm not sure if there's any formal uh, recommendations on this. You know, we had a really an amazing and eye-opening conference call with our colleagues uh, from China who mentioned actually that uh, all the healthcare workers were actually in a hotel in separate rooms for a couple of months while they were taking care of COVID-19 patients until the rates decreased. And then they stayed in the hotel for an extra week or so afterwards to make sure they didn't develop any symptoms. And then they reunited with their families. And then there's others, as you mentioned, that they separate from their families, but they live in in the same house, but they're, you know, they have a different shower, they're using different utensils. And then there are some that come home and they remove their clothes immediately, or maybe even better yet, they have scrubs where they change out of at the hospital, come home, shower, and they interact with their loved ones. Um, I think, aside from the, you know, the emotional pressures of, you know, isolating yourself from your uh, family, there's even like the financially, even um, physical issues of not being able to separate yourself. And so I think, you know, this decision may need to be uh, individualized, but I'll pass it over to Natasha to see if she has any other thoughts or perspectives on this.
4: Yeah, it's a great summary, Salman, and thanks to Annie Antar, who is the ID faculty member at Hopkins, who's arranged multiple calls with colleagues in China uh, to help us understand their clinical experience. I think as Salman is saying, this is going to be an individualized decision. And a lot of it just depends on what's what you're able to do and what your capacity is and and what the risk is, right? If you live with somebody who's at particularly high risk of severe disease, maybe you're gonna Think more about not staying at home. If you live with somebody who, you know, is a healthy 30-year-old person and you feel like you can probably really self-isolate well within your house, that's a different situation. And so, you know, I don't think we have great data yet on what people need to do. While I think the Chinese were later on in the epidemic pretty aggressive about separating their healthcare workers Um, You know, in South Korea, that wasn't done. And they didn't actually see a lot of healthcare worker transmission. So, you know, it's unclear, I think, at this point, what people should do. And and that's why it comes down to individual decision making. I, you know, I'm going to be attending on the COVID service in May. And I haven't entirely decided what I'm going to do. I have two young kids at home and uh, a husband who's a resident. So Uh, we'll have to talk about it. (laughs) Right now, I'm leaning towards uh, probably staying in a separate place. I think Hopkins is looking into providing housing for providers, um, but I haven't decided
3: yet. You know, this is a topic that hits home for all of us Uh, quite literally. And in my situation, you know, I I will be in the CCU quite soon. My wife is in the neonatal ICU as a provider and my son is in the daycare. So any one of us could be the culprits bringing it home. And it's just not really realistic for each of us to stay isolated. I do have one question that's also in the minds of healthcare workers, this concept of becoming a COVID-19 super user. (laughs) So some people are wondering, for example, Dr. Dan Grove, who's an ICU attending who unfortunately got COVID, but fortunately had a mild illness and it's starting to get better. But he's wondering, hey, should he be the guy doing intubations uh, from now on? Like, is he protected? Should he consider himself a COVID super user?
4: You know, I think we have to be careful about assuming uh, that people are fully protected of after recovery from illness. There have been some cases where it seems that people who had a resolution of symptoms recurred or they had um, tests that became positive again. And I, I think the majority of people think that it's unlikely people are getting reinfected just because from immune system standpoint, uh, immunity shouldn't wear off within weeks or days. Um, and most people are thinking that perhaps this is an issue of testing and uh, testing error and perhaps people were not newly positive again, but uh, just uh, continued to be positive. Um, I think the majority of folks think reinfection is unlikely, but I, I think until we have better information, we can't say it's a completely impossible situation. You know, Regardless, there are some reports that people may have uh, redeveloped symptoms. And so I think it's hard to know whether or not you're fully safe. Um, I think it's probably likely that you have immunity, but without knowing, I would hesitate to jump in and start bronking people without a mask on or things like that. Um, I think we also just have to be careful to keep in mind that when we're returning to work, we still, even if we've been infected as a healthcare worker, we still need to be really cautious. Uh, use our PPE not only to protect ourselves, but to make sure also what, that we're not transmitting to others, you know, through fomites or, or things like that. Particularly given how long people can shed for, we don't know whether or not shedding correlates to transmissibility. But I think if you know that you may have some virus in your throat. I probably would still be really cautious with my PPE.
1: Oh, thanks so much for that answer. And that makes sense. And I'm sure Dr. Rowe will definitely follow all of the precautions. But what do you make of the fact that people in Wuhan, there hasn't seemed to be another wave? Does that tell you anything, at least short term, that, that there is some least short term immunity that such people could right now get back into the field and be more comfortable in these rooms and that there is less risk?
4: I think it's hard to interpret because they still had a lot of um, mandatory social distancing being done in China that only recently was lightened up. So I think it's hard to interpret anything in that situation.
0: Yeah, I have some friends that are there, not in the Wuhan province, but in China. And they mentioned that, you know, they were isolated essentially for these last uh, few months. And just as Natasha has mentioned, just uh, I think last week, they have been able to just go out within like the small neighborhoods and the small neighborhood really means like a complex of three to four buildings and there's a small park in the middle and they're just when small groups of people are able to come out of their apartment and be outside in that area so they are just starting to remove a little bit of the physical distancing but it's still quite restricted as natasha mentioned
1: oh, thank you so much for that
2: yes thank you so much
4: yeah Thanks thank you so for much, Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at cardio nerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareem prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now a flutter moment.
1: Hello, my name is Dr. Meredith Sloan, and I'm a internal medicine resident at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. What made my heart flutter this week was our medical students, especially our fourth years. They have really stepped up to the plate in our community. They're delivering groceries to elderly people in their neighborhoods. They're making assembly lines to make swab kits, and they're answering phone calls on the employee hotline for COVID-19. They make me so humbled and proud that they'll be joining our ranks in just a few short months. Thank you all for all the hard work you do putting the podcast together. I've really enjoyed it. Dan, they just messaged us with some questions. He's reading. Oh it. Oh my gosh, he's reading it. Oh my gosh. No, i no, 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 no. I hadn't. I've had been muted. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And it was so good. You guys missed out. It was really amazing. <laughs> okay. <laughs>